Well, good morning, church. You can take your seats. Thank you. It is awesome. It is awesome to be here to worship with you, with, with Hope Markham this morning. Um, it's, it's great to be back, you know? It, it, it's, it's great to be back. Just walking into this building, it feels like home. It's, it's an amazing thing to be back. For those of you who don't recognize me or who didn't love Matt's explanation of who I am, uh, I'm Jeremy Giesberg. I'm from Redemption London. I do youth and young adults ministry. Uh, I recognize about half of your faces. That's a mask joke you'll get later. All right. So just over seven years ago, I was standing on this stage as Pastor Paul and some elders. Uh, I remember it a bit differently. They didn't just commission me. They kicked me out the door. They, they pushed me out. They said, we love you, but we want you to pastor somewhere else. We want you to go somewhere where you can fulfill your ministry. And I landed by God's grace at a sister church, Harvest London, now known as Redemption Bible Chapel London. The Lord has been very kind and very gracious to me there. And now the prodigal son returns, as they say. So Paul called me about a week and a half ago, and I don't know about y'all, but I get nervous when Paul calls me because it doesn't happen all that much. Um, But when he said he was looking for somebody to preach God's word, I was like, yes, yes, because you guys are family, and I love you, and I love preaching God's word. Um, So we're going to get into God's word. I'm not sure where you've been these past few weeks, um, just as we start off the fall, but this morning, please turn to John chapter 1 if you're not already there. The first sermon, sermon I ever preached was when I was just 17 years old. I was saved from my sin uh, when I was 16 in youth ministry, which is a big reason why I do youth ministry now. Um, my youth pastor and leaders, they were so faithful to share the word of God with me. So naturally, I wanted to do the same. So I asked the youth pastor if I could preach. I was really naive. I wish my youth pastor would have at least looked at my notes. It would have saved me a lot of embarrassment. I decided I was going to preach on grace. I don't remember what passage I chose. I remember what I preached was an acrostic poem. I don't remember what each letter stood for, but it was G-R-A-C-E, grace. Maybe it was God rescued amazingly Christians everywhere. I can't remember. But I do remember that it was an acrostic on grace, and I got a lot of it as I definitely butchered my gospel presentation that night. So this morning I'm going to be preaching on grace again but also truth, more specifically what it means to imitate Christ when it comes to grace and truth. If we claim to be Christ followers, Christians, that's little Christs, we should be imitating him. So uh, I gave a a picture to to the team there. We have these staff family values uh, on our wall at Redemption London. They were given to us by the elders just so that we would remember to love one another and be like Jesus to one another. I'm just gonna be upfront with you guys here. Um, before, before I worked on staff, I thought, man, it would, be, it would be nice to work on a church staff because Christians must be perfect to work with, right? Well, none of us are perfect. Just the fact that we have to have this up on the wall at London should tell you all you need to know. We need reminders constantly to love one another. We are difficult too. I can see by the upper half of your faces, that's not a shock to any one of you. Except for Paul. Paul is always a joy to work with. Always. Not too long ago, the elders, our elders, decided that we as staff should do short presentations on each of these at our staff meetings. It's a good way to encourage and exhort one another as we seek to to do everything to the glory of God. So the one I chose from all of these was be an imitator. 
And the text behind it, you'll see the one that you're in right now is John chapter 1. So here's the thing. I'm good at quite a few imitations. I'll do a few for you. For instance, I can do Kermit the Frog, and as Kermit the Frog, I implore you to repent and be baptized. (laughs) Or I can do Arnold. Come on, get to the chopper. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. Or look into this one, precious. Follow Jesus. Here's the world. I thought about this one before I, before I wrote it down. I can do Paul. This Paul. Well, so what? So what? Sorry, Paul. <laughs> so, obviously, this isn't what it means to be an imitator. Being an imitator is all about imitating the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or maybe you learned it the other way. Follow me as I follow Christ. It's an invitation to imitation. So I want to look at what this means to imitate Christ in terms of being full of grace and truth. So let's prepare our hearts with prayer first, and then we can read our short text. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. We are here today to worship you. We have sung your praises, and and you are worthy of all of our praises that we give to you and so, so much more. So we thank you for this morning we can gather here. What a privilege it is to even gather, Lord. So we thank you. And now, Lord, we're going to continue to worship as we look into your words. So uh, would you have us worship as we listen to what your word has to say? In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read John Chapter 1, verse 14, really short text this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So before we get, it, get into what it means to be imitators of Christ, we need to take care of this theological piece. And the theological piece is who is Christ? Who is this word became flesh? Why does this matter that he became flesh and dwelt among us? Well, if we don't get that piece, the rest doesn't matter. Because unless you know who you're imitating, you can't possibly imitate someone you don't know. Just like if I didn't, if if you asked me to imitate somebody that I didn't know, I would get the accent wrong or the inflection or the language, I would butcher it. So the answer to who is Jesus How you answer that question is everything. So this is your first point. Who you say Jesus is matters. Who you say Jesus is matters. So in our text, the word became flesh. Well, who is the word? Easy Sunday school answer is Jesus. Yes, three of you know the Sunday school answer. Perfect. But I want to give you some proof. And I didn't know that uh, Sam was going to read this this morning. But look back up to verse Verse 1 with me, okay? Verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What we have here is John explaining who the Word is before he ever became flesh, as in our passage. He was in the beginning. He's eternal, ever existing, before anything else existed. The word was there. He was with God. I don't have time for the full doctrine of the Trinity right now, but the word Jesus, the Son, was with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There they are in eternity past, existing alongside one another because they are one being, God. 
And the Word was God. The Word is not some created being. The Word is not some demigod. The Word was and is God. This description of big G God can only fit three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But which one? Well, by process of elimination, we can tell. The Word put on flesh. Well, the Father did not put on flesh. Neither did the Holy Spirit. So by process of elimination, the only one left is Jesus, the Son. But let's dig a little bit deeper than process of elimination. This word in Greek, the logos, I'm sure many of you have heard that before, it has a deeper philosophical meaning of more than just mere words on a page. This logos implies a complete whole message, God's complete message to all mankind. The gospel, this word, is Jesus because the gospel is a complete message of redemption from God to mankind. The word Jesus is the full embodiment of God. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That actually sounds a lot like our passage from John 1. Jesus Christ is God. He is the God who put on flesh to take away my sins. Period. End of argument. No caveats will be taken. Jesus is not simply a good man. He's not simply a prophet. He's not simply a historical figure. He's not simply a warrior or a king or a carpenter. He was those things, but not simply those things. He is God. And who you say he is today, it matters. It matters. It matters more than any other decision you'll make. If you say he was just a good man, well, that means he can't take away your sins because there are no good men. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you say he was just a prophet, why would his words matter any more than Jeremiah or Isaiah? Or if you say he's just a historical figure or a king, why would anything in his life or death be of more importance than King Henry or Martin Luther King? But if you say that he is God, he loved you enough to die for you and, and to take away your sins while you hated him, that's everything. That's everything. This is not just some intellectual ascent. We're not robots created without minds to praise him, but declaring and living as though you love him because he first loved you. He died for you. This is the logos, the complete message of redemption that God wants to tell you today. And if you've made that declaration, well, now you're able to start imitating him. Because when you declare Jesus as Lord, he takes the old heart of stone out and gives you a heart of flesh. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He brings you from death to life. Dead people, those who will not confess Jesus as Lord, dead people cannot imitate Christ. They can't. They can try and fake it. We know this. We, we see this around our world. 
but they cannot imitate him truly. They start well. They maybe even look like real branches for a time, but eventually they wither and die and are thrown into the fire. So what does it look like to imitate Jesus in being full of grace and full of truth? Let's figure out what grace and truth mean here in our passage, and then we can apply them as we seek to imitate Christ, as we seek to be little Christs. Here's your second point. This is kind of more of a heading to keep track of this. Grace defined. Grace defined. So what is grace? Grace in our language is quite a few things, right? Grace can be a name. Grace can be exhibited as athletes bound around bases or glide across the ice. Grace can be said before a meal. My favorite definition of grace, though, comes from a popular Christian hip-hop artist, Shailin. He has a better acrostic than the one I wrote, all right? His is, grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. All that God has, the inheritance that the Son, Christ, deserves, we get at the expense of the murder of Christ, The grace we're talking about, the grace that Jesus was full of is undeserved, unmerited favor. It's getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you do not deserve. I want you to think about this definition for a minute. Undeserved, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Grace is something extended to you, even though you don't deserve it. Some of you in this room might be feeling like, wait a minute, I do deserve grace from God. I serve in kids' ministry. Do you know what that's like? I deserve grace for that. I've given my life. I've given so many dollars. I'm at church every Sunday when we can be here. But don't get it twisted, friends. You deserve nothing good. I deserve nothing good. Because of our sin, because because of my sin, you and I deserve to be punished forever in hell, annihilated off the face of the earth because we have offended a holy and a righteous God. God owes you nothing. And if you think he does, my friend, you need more grace than you even know. Grace is what God gave us through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Grace is Jesus Christ taking that punishment, your punishment, my punishment, on himself and giving you a receipt that says paid in full with a smile on his face because of the joy that was set before him. He he endured the cross. That's grace. But Christ wasn't just gracious one time. He was full of grace. Think about your Bible for a minute. Think about it. How many times does Christ, by extension, God, how many times does he give people grace? Think about Jonah. He ran completely the opposite direction, but God did not give him what he deserved, but gave him grace. He deserved to be eaten by sharks, not swallowed by a whale, right? Peter denied Christ three times, and yet Jesus gave him so much grace and even restored him publicly. Think about the woman caught in adultery. She literally deserved to be stoned. The law said so. 
And yet Jesus extends her grace, even though as the perfect judge of the universe, he could have smote her that day. Jesus is so full of undeserved, unmerited favor for those who will declare him as Lord. Let's move to truth. Your third point is truth defined. So now I'll ask you the question I asked you before, what is grace? So now I'll ask you, what is truth? Well, depending on what room I ask that question today, truth might be different for everybody. Truth is very, very relative today, so much so that it's becoming harder and harder to claim that truth isn't relative because you'll be laid at a hateful bigot. If your truth contradicts my truth, you hate me, and I hate you. That's what our world says. And sadly, this has even crept into the church. It's dividing us more than ever right now. Maybe you felt that. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But truth is literally defined as that which is true in accordance with fact or reality. And some of you are like, you can't use true to define true. Talk to Webster. I didn't come up with a definition, all right? Some truths are widely accepted. For instance, most people believe that one plus one is two. That's true. Most people believe that the earth is round. For thousands of years, the fact that there were only two genders was believed as truth. One songwriter wrote that the only two things certain or true in life are death and taxes. Those are the only things certain or true. But when speaking about Jesus being full of truth, the Bible wasn't talking about Jesus knowing every math formula or every fact about every animal. In this case, being full of truth means being full of God's word. Just by one example, the temptation in the wilderness, we know that Jesus knew exactly what the truth was. He was full of truth. He knew what the Bible said. He was able to resist temptation three times because he knew that not only was Satan twisting around God's word, but Jesus knew what the scripture said as counterpoints to counter the subtle lies of the devil. And the devil lies subtly, right? Just like in the garden. Did God really say? But Jesus was full of truth. He was full of God's word. Okay, you might agree with me now. But how do, how do I know, how do I know that all of God's word is true? I'll give you an answer, but y'all at Hope Markham are really smart, and I know some of you are going to argue with me that I'm using circular reasoning because I'm going to use the Bible to prove the Bible. Yes, I am. And here's why. Because there's no higher authority than this. Absolutely no higher authority than this. None. So how, how can I or why would I want to appeal to something that's not higher than God's word? God's word tells me that his word is true. It says so. Psalm 119 verse 160. The sum of your word, all of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 151, but you are near, O Lord, and all of your commandments are true. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. What's truth? Your word is truth. So defined, God's word is the truth here that we need to be full of because it's the truth that Jesus was full of. Here is your last point, and it's mostly an application point. 
We need to be full of grace and truth. We need to be imitators of Christ. So the and in this, in this point and in this verse is incredibly important because the balance, it needs to be there in order to be a true imitator of Christ. Jesus was both of these at the same time. He had grace for the woman caught in adultery. But he didn't just say, yeah, okay, you have grace. But he said, now go and sin no more. There's the truth. He had grace for Peter when he denied him. But he also fed Peter harsh but necessary truths often. Like when he said, get behind me, Satan, because Peter had his own agenda in mind. The grace and the truth. The balance must be there. Let me explain why. I found this quote. It had no author attached. I've heard this quote from quite a few preachers. Maybe you've heard it before. It's not mine. I just don't want to take credit for it. Grace without truth is irresponsible enabling. Grace without truth is irresponsible enabling, but truth without grace is quarrelsome bullying. When you give just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, but never point people to Christ with the word, with the truth, you're just enabling them in sin to make God's grace look cheap. But when you give only truth with no room for grace, you just like to be a bully, just beating people over the head with God's word. You know both, both kinds of people. You have both kinds of people in your church and on staff. Hopefully not all the time, but even you have been both of these people at times. I know I have. Let me give you examples of both from my life. I have zero grace, and the Lord is working on me in this. I have zero grace and all truth for other drivers. Just truth. uh, You should be driving as perfectly as me, and I know you all laugh because you're looking in a mirror right now. I get it. What's the thing you have no grace for with other people? Maybe it's you have no grace for other people at the supermarket as you're waiting in line. You have 16 items. This lane says only 12. You've got to get out of there. Maybe you have no grace at home with your spouse. What's the thing you have no grace for with other people? As I, as I was writing this sermon, the Lord has been showing me tons and tons of grace. I... I've realized more and more my lack of grace for others. And here's the truth. My lack of grace for others is rooted in self-righteousness. My lack of grace for others is rooted in self-righteousness. Well, I work hard. Why doesn't she work hard? I'm wearing my mask. Why can't he? I show up on time for youth or small group or church. Why can't this person... I serve everywhere. Why doesn't that person just serve one place? Our own self-righteousness causes me to show less grace to other people. But can I just be honest? Self-righteousness has no place in the church. It certainly wasn't how Christ treated us, and he was the only one who was ever perfectly righteous and therefore could have been self-righteous. But our selfish, self-righteous attitudes towards other people 
towards the church, towards maybe leadership, the Lord is not honored by our self-righteousness. See, God has shown us immeasurable amount of grace in our lives, in all areas of our lives. You can probably think of immeasurable things that you've done that deserve grace. So how can we do any less to others, especially those who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ? I want to encourage you, have grace for one another. Have grace for one another. Have grace for family and friends who disagree with you. It's happening a lot lately, isn't it? Have grace for others when they don't believe the same thing as you when it comes to masks. Can I say the V word, Paul? Or the vaccine. Have grace for those who don't believe the exact same thing as you. I'm talking to both sides on that. Don't think that your side is exempt from that. Have grace for ministry leaders. There's a new launch to ministry just recently, right? September, new launch to ministry year. Have grace for ministry leaders. We're leading in a tough time. We don't know how everything goes or where everything goes in pandemic ministry. It's new to us too. Have grace. Have grace for Paul and the rest of the team as I mean, you guys have been through some hard things in the last year. Have grace for Paul and the rest of the team as they try to put the pieces back together. Have grace for yourself as you try, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to follow and imitate Christ. Our self-righteousness in these things will leave us divided. And we know that a house divided will fall. We have evangelical Bible-believing churches publicly shaming other evangelical Bible-believing churches. And this is dividing the church. But grace to one another, even when we disagree, will help us to remember the gospel and how Christ was so good to us. You see, when we only have grace for those who are closest to us, those who are most like us, those who think like us, act like us, look like us, agree with us, it shows how narrow our understanding of the gospel truly is. God gave you grace while you were his enemy. Not giving grace to those who are your enemies show you don't and really understand what God did for you. D.A. Carson said it this way, only when we see the depth of our sin, that's the truth, we will be electrified by the wonder of grace. When we see what God has truly done for us, then we'll be more gracious. But there's also this other side of this teeter-totter, the truth part. I was thinking about who I have too much grace for and not enough truth for. I couldn't think of anyone for a while because I tend to be more of a truth guy, just being honest. But you know who I have too much grace for? It's not my wife because sinfully the truth is a bit quick off my tongue sometimes. No, it's myself. I I irresponsibly enable myself in sin because that's what my flesh wants me to do. My sin is... I get pleasure from eating. Yeah, you can have that other bag of chips. Just have grace for yourself. But this is why we need brothers and sisters who can speak the truth in love to us. Notice that's the truth in love. Not just the truth, the truth in love. Ephesians says this edifies us. When I speak the truth in love to my friends and brothers and sisters, no matter how hard it is, if it's in love, my heart can be right before the Lord. A lot of times as 
we as humans, we rely on our feelings to show us the way. Which way do we go? But I've been telling my youth this a lot lately and my young adults, and I told my, our congregation this, our feelings don't matter when stacked against the word of God. Our feelings don't matter. Are you going to feel bad if you obey God's word and, and break up with your non-Christian girlfriend or boyfriend? You're going to be sad? Absolutely. But you followed the truth of God's word that says, do not be unequally yoked. Is it going to feel good to tell the truth or be ethical at work, even though you might lose your job? God's word says that lying is a sin, and that includes being ethical. Will it feel bad to lose a friend if you share the gospel? It'll be hard. But that doesn't change the truth of God's word that it needs to be shared. So question for you, who needs that truth in your life, even if it's hard because it's the loving thing to do? Yesterday, uh, we did a conference this weekend, a youth conference, and yesterday we walked to a park and, I don't know, grade, grade 6 to grade 12s are like herding cats sometimes. It's true. So we walked to a park, and the park was, I don't know, no farther. It was, it was a bit down the road. There's a park just down this road, I remember. No farther than that park. And the amount of times I yelled at kids because they were on a road was crazy. But I had to give them that truth. Get off the road. You're going to get hit by a car because it was the loving thing to do. I didn't want them to get hit by a car. So who's that person in your life? Maybe it's your child who needs the truth that they're behaving in a worldly manner, even though they've, they've confessed being a Christian. Maybe it's a family member who needs to hear about their sin and how they're headed for hell. Maybe it's a parent, even here today, who, who needs to allow their child to leave and to cleave because they're married now, and that part of their, your authority has ended. Maybe it's a friend who needs to hear that their pride and negativity are not Christ-like. They're justified in how they got there. They've been treated poorly, but their pride and negativity in this is not Christ-like. Maybe it's yourself. And you need to keep telling yourself the truth of God's word that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You are a precious child in his eyes. You don't need to be anxious because he's with you. Maybe somebody needs that exact word this morning. But whoever that is, speak that truth in love. God's, com God's word commands us to speak that truth in love. We need to be full of grace and truth. You know, another benefit to being full of truth is, like I said before, resisting temptation. As humans, we often tend to resist temptation like this. I can do this. I can do this. I'll start the diet tomorrow. I'll get on that exercise bike 30 days in a row. I'll read my Bible. I will, will, will do it. I will do it. But Jesus... He didn't white-knuckle his way through temptation. He didn't. He was full of God's word. 
He was able to resist temptation in the desert because he had God's word in his heart and in his mind. Psalm 119.11. Some of you have memorized this verse. It's amazing. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we are full of truth, and remember God's word is truth, we're far less likely to sin against him. It's easier to remember that God has redeemed me if I read it every single day or if I listen to it on a podcast every single day. It's easy to remember that he will never leave me or that he has never left me. Maybe you're in that situation right now. That there is joy in suffering. That somehow in all of this suffering that we're going through, there is joy. That he is sovereign. And we can remember that he is sovereign over everything. Or that he will provide. That he's the only way to salvation. That I need to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. That I need to show grace for others, especially those of the household of faith. Sadly, I know far too many believers who who don't know what the truth is or forget what it is because they can't see it under the dust their Bible is gathering. We are doing the 5G Life series at our church right now. Maybe some of you have heard of that series. Uh, Hope Oakville did it about, I don't know, six years ago, and we're doing it right now. And um, In the 5G Life, a Christ follower abides, connects, and shares, and then there's 5Gs. Oh, boy. God time. Gather time, group time, give time, go time. Tell Norm I got them all. In John 15, 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. We have to be full of truth. We have to be full of grace. And if, if we're not abiding with Christ, we can't do either. If we don't have God's word in us, we can't do that. I want to encourage you with that right now. I know you're not in the 5G series, but... I would encourage you this morning, abide with Christ. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was perfectly balanced as all things should be in Jesus. We're never going to be perfect in showing these to one another. That's the truth. We're never going to be perfect. And that's where grace comes in. When we have grace for one another, we begin to see the gospel through one another. Because we do life together, right? That's a beautiful, beautiful thing when you can see the gospel shining through one another. We also need to speak the truth in love even when it's hard. Because it's how the church is edified and how God is glorified. So this morning, I don't know where you were at. Some of you I, I don't know at all, but God's word remains the same. This morning, let us press on to imitate Christ in being full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. As uh, Matthew prayed before, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces, it divides. Your word is truth and we know the truth of your word that the purposes for which you have set your word out for, it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you have put it out.
So we thank you for that this morning. Thank you for John 1.14. Thank you for Jesus Christ, that we can imitate him. Once, we, once we've declared that he is Lord, then we can start to imitate him. But, oh, Lord, we need your help in this. We need your spirit. We need you working in our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, to be full of grace and full of truth as we go from here. Lord, it's really easy to err on one side or the other. Help us, O oh Lord, to be balanced in Christ. Not for, not for our glory, but all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.